Yes, welcome to the podcast. I am your host, Gage Clark. feel that you know me? Do you feel that all of us know you? Does anyone know each other? Who am I? Who are you? Am I who you think I am? I become who you think I am. We become who you think we are. We are your thoughts. We are isolated and connected. Is the sense of self a delusion if it contradicts popular opinion? Are you who you think you are? Who are you? Are you you, or are you who we think you are? Free yourself from the question, who am I? The ego develops at an early age. It is not something that you are born with. It is a metacognitive sense of self. It is a generalization of your own observations of yourself and your behaviors. This generalization becomes a factor in your decisions. Then you generalize a new set of behaviors that are based on your metacognitive generalizations of yourself. This pattern continues until you are left with a hyper-generalized state that is based on recursive generalizations of yourself, until your behavior becomes a very predictable and patterned existence. This is what psychedelics undo. This is your ego. There is a concept known as the family nexus. I would rather call it the social nexus or simply the nexus. The idea with this is that those around us who form a social clique or social circle will form judgments and they will tend to form judgments upon which they agree on. Once they judge a person, this can shape their identity. If someone were to judge you as a bad person, this can change how you judge yourself. From this point, once a judgment has been made, a phenomenon known as confirmation bias will take hold, where a person will be seeking confirmation of whatever judgment they have made. They will find patterns and confirmation and validation in what they see in your behaviors so that it can maintain their judgment. There is an experiment known as the Rosenhan experiment in which fake patients were admitted to psychiatric hospitals under the condition that they were experiencing hallucinations. Upon admission, they told the doctors that they were no longer experiencing hallucinations and began to act normally. They asked to be released, but their average release time was 19 days. They experienced doctors who would talk in front of the patients as if they weren't there and they felt objectified by this experience. They also felt extreme boredom. Sometimes the doctors or workers even went to the bathroom in front of these patients. 
Many of them reported that their feelings felt completely invalidated, that their perspectives and ideas were not taken seriously, and that they were just labeled as crazy and brushed off. In this case, we can see how being told that we are crazy, being identified as invalid, can really shape how our identity forms. Imagine this same experiment, except imagine that you were on a psychedelic drug, and that instead of doctors and nurses, you were surrounded by your family and peers who have no training in psychology. It isn't hard to imagine how this might send you off into some sort of psychotic episode. For example, we can see that a person labeled as invalid will try harder to be validated, and this is thought to be how narcissism forms. Much of the diagnosis criteria of bipolar disorder and schizophrenia involve grandiosity and narcissistic-like traits. So it becomes very interesting when we consider that being labeled as invalid can really bring upon many symptoms. And if you think about what the label schizophrenia really is, we are telling the person that their own thoughts are likely or more likely to be invalid than other people. We are telling them that they can't trust their own thoughts because they are delusional. We are telling them that their feelings are the byproduct of a mental illness. And while this might not be the perspective of most psychiatric doctors, this is likely very common, and we must factor in the fact that many of the people judging these individuals it will be their family and peers. And this becomes more problematic as the diagnosis of schizophrenia involves people becoming quite incapable of living their own lives. This will cause them to become more dependent on the people that are perpetuating their sickness with their identity judgments. Now imagine that you are in the Rosenhan experiment, and imagine that instead of highly trained professionals such as the doctors and nurses, imagine that it is your family and peers who are making the judgments. And imagine that you are on psychedelic drugs, which leave you highly sensitive to experiences. It isn't hard to imagine how this could really destroy your identity in the long term, even after the drug wears off, and how this newfound identity could really be the basis for psychotic episodes and traumatic responses from these drugs. Many people feel dissociated and left in a weird state of mind after taking these drugs, but it may not be necessarily that it is caused only by the drugs, but instead by the newfound reality that you've created because of your behaviors on or even after taking the drug. The anxiety and the traumaticness of those experiences may leave you with dissociative symptoms. To give an easy, specific example of how these judgments may unfold, imagine that you are a gay Christian, and imagine that you have not come out of the closet. You will be surrounded by people making judgments on your identity because of the disagreement in the Christian culture with homosexuality. 
This alone may be traumatizing on some level, as you will begin to reject yourself and maybe even be philosophically opposed to your own identity. This could eventually build up enough traumatic effects that you will begin to dissociate, and more specifically, you may dissociate from your own identity with your gayness. Imagine during the psychedelic experience that you confess to your family or peers that you are homosexual. This could cause people to judge you as the Christian culture does. This could mean losing all of your friends and family and all the relationships that you've built throughout your life. This means you will also be alone and have no aid in coping. This could be exactly why people would experience psychotic episodes. It could be that the effects of psychosis really come from isolation, rejection, fear, trauma, and a list of other possible causes, rather than some kind of chemical imbalance. The chemical imbalance model is much like labeling running as a disorder. Imagine that your neurochemicals and bodily hormones are altered while you are running. Now, consider that scientists may notice that your behavior of running is odd and they may do scans and find out that your hormones and neurochemicals are altered. They may conclude that the running disease is caused by these neurochemical changes. But this disregards many subjective experiences and really would invalidate the real causes that lead to this behavior. Psychiatry is really in its infantry, so it isn't surprising to find problems like this. Much of it is almost in the realm of pseudoscience at this time and age. Now, I'm going to get into a post I've done called Schizotypal, which is a sort of explanation of what it's like to be schizotypal or even psychotic. Psychosis is the manifestation of a self-created, normative, personal universe. Everyone else has subscribed to some other collective universe because of the ease and comfort involved with an already formed culture. The opium of the masses is not only religion, but also culture. Culture sedates your thinking and outsources the ability to think to the group. It's comfortable because of the high levels of validation from your peers where everyone is agreeing on the same worldview. It's comfortable because it is easier than thinking for yourself. The answers are given to you without the need to solve any puzzles. The answers are thoughtless in essence. Any attempt to unravel these truths is an attempt to unravel these comforts, much like taking opium from the addict. Each individual will shout out their cultural norms and dogmas to you for threatening their security and they will reject the individual who appears different because it threatens the comfort of the masses. The masses will individually realize that they have no thought, but regardless of this, they will submit to the consensus because of the incentive that their euphoric unity provides. Removal of any normalized euphoria involves suffering, 
This is something known in the research on drug addiction, where the removal of pleasure can induce suffering. Simply the notion of difference itself is a threat to the cultural nationalism that is based on collective and socialized endorphin and dynorphin activity. Rejecting these individuals is necessarily euphoric for the collective minds because it threatens to dissolve the collective unity of delusion that has become the massive culture. The massive culture's addiction to collective validation and hyper-acceptedness causes the outcast individuals to be rejected into invalidation and non-euphoria. Total cultural withdrawal and progressive isolation will occur in the reject due to these motivations of the massive culture and also for the sake of the reject's sanity. On one hand, the rejects now have a free perception, free thought, a philosopher's mind, freedom from the inflicted suffering caused by deviation from the culture's norms and laws because they are no longer interacting with the cultural thought police. On the other hand, they are so outcast that their development is eternally damned. This degradation of development occurs both personally without any strong external guidance and also socially without any culture to easily assimilate and find cozy acceptance in. Their trust in anyone is halted because of Pavlovian conditioning, because of the fact that they were so consistently rejected to the point that expecting distrustable behaviors from others is the most rational tendency. And so, paranoia ensues. Their own intelligent free thought has the reject assuming others will devise equally intelligent free thoughts or else they suffer grandiosity as they begin to realize everyone else is not experiencing free thought and that everyone else has bandwagoned a culture and is being limited by the threat of dysphoria for deviating from their norms and are merely sheepishly imprisoned by the massive culture, much like the common cliché. The massive cultures do not promote exploration because exploration leads to deviation and deviation eventually means contradicting the culture. Rejection societies eventually form countercultures such as veganism, a movement which will at first will be judged as a psychotic collective of mad individuals until the movement becomes popular enough that it unravels the comfort zones of the masses and induces the typical behaviors of cognitive dissonance that we commonly see when people are confronted with vegan ideas with the eventual possibility that cultural war will occur. Eventually, vegans will judge the carnists, and the tables will turn, and then the carnists will become the schizophrenics of society. Progress is driven by the mentally ill, but so is those who are left behind in society and society's resistance to progress and society's fear of the unknown causes the typical manifestations of psychotic behavior in the rejects. 
Symptoms such as grandiosity, which is the idea that you aren't wrong, and paranoia, which is expecting distrust because of your rejection, and also isolation behaviors, madness from the suffering, and alternative perspectives that significantly deviate from the normative perception begin to emerge. Most common patterns of truth reveal only that our normative perceptions are as hallucinatory as the psychotics, but based on a different cultural construct and baseless assumptions. Most culture is based on common logical fallacies making matters worse. Appeal to authority, appeal to popularity, and biases towards the reality that cause least perceptible suffering are ubiquitous. Closing our eyes to suffering has become the truth. This is seen with the homeless as we gaze away from them. This is seen with the animals we eat. This is seen with the way we rationalize the mentally ill. The easiest to transmit ideas will remain strong as we see with the mainstream religions and eventually as we will see with scientism soon enough. Psychedelics can cause psychosis because they simply unravel your culture. They cure your Pavlovian prisons set forth by the endogenous opioid-driven mass cultures. This is precisely why they cure addiction and PTSD, both known to be opioid-driven conditions. I'm going to expand this idea of the nexus and how identity can be imposed on us by social and cultural norms and expand it to a phenomenon that I've sort of realized lately that has to do with the dynamic of children and parents. So we know that children have not yet been conditioned, clearly, but one of the roles of parents is to condition their children. What's interesting about this is that there is a sort of purity that children have that allows them to see idealism, an idealism that can cause progress of society towards those ideals, right? And what's interesting is that um, adults will lose this idealism because that we have to cope with the environmental factors that we are given. But there's an interesting effect when, let's say, a whole society of people is put under famine. They may change their norms, and the parents will teach new habits that help the children survive under these conditions. But when you continue and the environment changes and the famine ends, we will not necessarily find that the culture and habits update quickly. They will tend to linger on these habits, and I think I understand why now. Consider the example of famine that I just posed. Let's say that humans begin eating meat during the winter famines where um, there is no longer plants available because of the snowfall. Maybe the plants are covered or dead and now we have to kill and eat animals. 
there is some amount of conditioning that we undergo by killing the animal, right? So we, um, uh, there is a kind of traumatic effect of engaging in this action of killing, that it is a very intense experience. That's why most people don't want to see this kind of thing going on. We try to cover our eyes to this because it is painful. And so we will teach our children, or at least in history, it is likely that we would expose our children to the killing of animals so that they can engage in this and have food to survive for themselves when they are adults. And in the children's eyes, they may have this sort of idealism that is unrealistic for the environment that they want a world where no killing is necessary. But this is not conducive to the survival in the environment that led to the killing of animals in the first place. And so it becomes interesting as society updates and we no longer need to engage with this behavior anymore, that we have enough resources that we may even uh, turn vegan, essentially. We find that culture does not update so quickly that people do not just stop killing animals, and it is because we continue to habitually teach our children uh, and kind of remove these ideals that the children have because they were once beneficial, but now they are maintained as a sort of cultural habit and it's interesting because children cannot have power and influence to change culture necessarily. For the most part, they are disregarded. They are considered too naive to have impacts on our culture. And so what we find is that we will essentially condition children. And by the time they have enough power to influence the culture, they are now brainwashed to where their ideals that can uh, lead to societal progress are now removed by the time they're at the age of power and influence. This may be as young as 20-year-olds or 15-year-olds, but they will no longer have the, the ideals that can shape our future. And what's interesting is this idea that psychedelics may remove our culture and remove our Pavlovian conditioning, remove our addiction and our PTSDs, and kind of reveal, again, these original ideals that are instilled in us as we are born. And on some level, if the environment is bad, this may lead to a very enhanced suffering. But for people in a well-off environment, this may mean that they can have a vision of progress that helps us advance society. And this is what we see in Silicon Valley. Furthermore, it is quite interesting that uh, we find that people's personality types or personality traits are essentially set by the first grade. And 
This is likely due to conditioning and essentially learning of your own identity. And it is likely that the environment shapes some amount of this, and genes obviously as well, but the environment will sort of sculpt um, how we respond to different environmental factors, and this will create a kind of nexus that has residual effects for the rest of our lives. And it becomes very difficult to escape these because we are so convinced of who we are. We are so ingrained into our egos that it is very hard to escape. But what's interesting is the research shows that people who take psychedelics have lasting changes in their personality even when tested a year after their experience. More specifically, it is the trait pers uh, it is the trait openness to experience that we find changed in these individuals. And it is quite interesting because they're used to also treat depression. And it could be that what happens is depression occurs because people will be experiencing a reality that is much like the famine on some level. Maybe that their resources are low, that their friend uh, friendships are not in high quantity or various other problems. And even when those problems are removed and they, they will continue to essentially behave depressed uh, just out of habit because they've created an identity with depression. And I think this is the case with many mental illnesses. And I think that with depression, for example, we may be rewarded even by this identity that people can be more lenient towards people who are depressed. And this may mean that we can act um, with more leniency, and in essence, that is a reward in itself. So, for example, let's say I'm working on some music, I may use depression as an excuse to not engage in social socialization, and instead just continue to um, work on music, or even worse, just continue to watch Netflix in a binge episode. And I think this is actually quite common. I think that we can eventually become so ingrained in the habits that we develop under this identity of depression that we don't want to escape. But then along comes this psychedelic episode, and this induces a kind of uh, freedom from ego. It dissolves the ego and causes ego death. And once you are free from all of these conditions and habits that we've identified with, it allows you to redevelop a new uh, existence, a new identity. For some, this new identity can be very problematic, as I've outlined earlier, where someone may reveal um, things about themselves that end up destroying their identity and relationships in their life and end up leading to high amounts of stress or traumatic experiences, which could eventually become what schizophrenia is. I think that the case for schizophrenia, I think that 
they have genes that may tend to cause them to deviate from cultural norms and that leaves them much more prone to traumatic experience and rejection and isolation. And I think that these are what lead to a lot of the other symptoms that occur in psychosis. I think psychosis can occur to anyone, but a lot of people are protected from it with their sort of opium of the masses. And it could be that essentially the people that experience psychosis, like the schizophrenic, is experiencing this as a sort of withdrawal from the opium of the masses, the sort of rejection and isolation that may occur. And it may be that hallucinations are a effect of stress and sleep deprivation and health problems. And there could be a lot more to that as well. There could even be a natural inclination that the genes lead to to hallucinate. But I'm not convinced that hallucination is really that much of a problem towards our lives. I think for some it can be. And I think a lot of the people who hallucinate do in fact suffer and become distressed. But I think a lot of that distress is the fear that you will become crazy. I think in that sense, your uh, experiencing hallucinations can cause you to become traumatized because you fear the label of craziness. And in my own experience, I have hallucinated, and I do not find this to be much of a problem. I've never feared it. I even used to enjoy it when I was younger. I used to um, be excited that the end of the day was coming, and I would sit in my bed and observe hallucinations that would happen. These stopped, and later in life, I have sometimes experienced hallucinatory effects from the from ingesting cannabis but they would occur in only a two second time span and i've actually learned that if i directly observe whatever it is uh, it tends to just fade off within seconds and but there's been times in my life where i would uh, be afraid of these because i was afraid that i would become crazy i would dwell on this and i if i saw something that was hallucinatory, I would tend to just not even look at it. I noticed that I might see what I think is a person in the corner of my eye, and I would be anxious and not give direct eye contact to it, but then later I decided to just say, screw it, and I will directly observe these things. And when I did that, they would fade off in about two seconds, and then I would see whatever it is it that was actually there. Sometimes the person was a mailbox, sometimes it was a chair or something, something that has a vague resemblance of a human figure. And I've even noticed this trend in people who uh, have become popular schizophrenics. I've seen a TED talk of this woman who uh, experienced a clown hallucination and she said it was in the audience at the time and, that, and then further down the line she admitted that she never even gives direct eye contact because it scares her so much and I think part of it could be that the trauma itself of that experience can uh, manifest eventually as hallucinations and when you think of it this way you can realize that you can escape this loop of craziness. 
this identity of schizophrenia really seems a lot like this mass hysteria that we we fear craziness and fear itself can bring upon craziness that craziness might even be a response to fear and even the idea of mass hysteria can really be a mass psychosis we can just look back in history during the 1500s where there was a dancing plague there were even people who died because of this dancing plague where they would continuously dance and become sleep deprived and just continue to dance until some of them had heart attacks or strokes because of the excessive physical exertion but we can all realize that dancing is not some contagious disease and that this was likely some kind of psychosomatic effect. The diagnoses that we put out, I think they create toxic identities for people that they can identify, and sometimes they are rewarded with these identities, like in the case of depression, or maybe even in misbehavior disorders, where now their misbehavior has become validated and justified, that they can't help it. And I think this can be very problematic because there may even exist a case where someone has misbehavior and that there is a kind of justified existence of this misbehavior. But to tell someone that I think would validate uh, further misbehaviors that they may even begin to lie about these misbehaviors. And there's a, there's a real danger in that. I think that maybe we should even just not diagnose these people and try to understand what people's experiences are like from their subjective uh, perspective. Maybe the people who misbehave are simply more anxious. Maybe they are more rejected. Maybe they are freaking out because no one seems to understand their perspective. And if we just look towards this uh, alternative um, perspective on what mental health problems are, I think we can really fix a lot of what goes on in these people's lives and abolish a lot of the suffering. The diagnosis of schizophrenia appears to be a modern Salem witch trials on some level, where people freak out and become hysterical that they themselves have been diagnosed. They will no longer trust their own thoughts, psychiatrists will teach these patients that they cannot trust themselves because their own thoughts are considered delusions. There is a lot of invalidation that occurs in these people's experiences, and I think a lot of it really just begins as a person having different experiences because their genes may lead to enhanced exploration, which means that they will be much more likely to having an experience that doesn't match the rest of the other people's. And once people begin to disagree with those experiences, that's when a kind of defensiveness can manifest. I think a possible solution to these problems with identity and the nexus could be that we involve the whole family or whatever social circle is involved with the problematic identity causing many of the symptoms and problems that these people face. So we may have group therapy sessions and teach each person how the nexus uh, perpetuates some of these problems and try to help bridge the miscommunications and misunderstandings that each person has in this group of people.
Another interesting thing that is a bit more controversial is social media intervention. This especially applies to things like personality disorders, where the problem is almost entirely generated by social circumstances. Consider borderline personality disorder, for example. Some of their problems seem to stem from interactions with people who would tend to be sociopathic or those who are abusive that end up causing the person to become more attached and clingy to whatever person. They will tend to push people away with their clingy behaviors, and this can lead to more isolation. And I think that one of the problems here is that these people would, because of their past traumatic experiences, they may be more afraid to um, interact with unfamiliar people, which which the reason this is a problem is that they may only be familiar with people who tend to cause the problem. This may be all they know. And so part of their problem may be that they were afraid to explore new types of people because they are afraid of finding something worse because they've already been conditioned by negative experiences. And so this can cause that typical cycle that we see with a lot of people where they continue to engage in abusive relationships because the fact that it's negative would inhibit any kind of exploration. You would tend to just try to stick with what you think is the most safe option. And you have no understanding or realization that anything better could exist. So... One way that we can intervene with social media is create algorithms that prevent these people from sticking to the familiar types of people that they would interact with. Right now, social media is geared towards matching people who would increase activity on the social media websites. Or, or it matches us towards our interests or different things like this. But instead, we might be able to find ways to analyze which types of um, identities interact most positively so that we can increase the well-being of people. So a lot of people may find that intervening with social media is invasive, but consider that we are already doing this right now, except it's for a different purpose. We do it to increase the profits of these corporations that created the social media. So the only difference is that we would increase essentially the psychological profits of the users instead of the creators. I think if we open our mind, this could end up pretty good for society. I think that we don't need to have any, um, there doesn't need to be any human workers involved with managing who meets who or how these algorithms necessarily work. We can generalize them and we can make an algorithm that is based on increasing well-being in a general way rather than to assume what is good for each other's well-being. 
And this could be as simple as asking in a survey how they feel. We could ask them how they've been lately. And like, for example, right now we know that social media is linked to increasing depression with individuals. So that's my take for today. Um, hope you found this pretty interesting. Subscribe on iTunes. Please leave a rating. I'm not sure I've gotten any ratings yet. I have tended to get about 300 views on each episode so far, and I've never really asked for people to rate it, but maybe I should. So on Google Play or Stitcher or iTunes, wherever you're watching this, if you could rate it, that will help. Or at least I think I have not learned too much about the iTunes algorithm yet. But every other podcast I listen to, they promote that, so it's probably a good idea to do that. And tune in for future content. Check out my YouTube channel if this is interesting. I will be releasing a uh, video about the first 10 minutes of this episode where I'm going to try to make it pretty artistic and stuff, hopefully. So look forward to that. And if you haven't already, check out my music and you may support this project by... Uh, purchasing this music is a form of donation so that you actually get a product in return. And you may also become a patron on Patreon if that's something you're interested in. Anything helps. I And I think that is all for today. I will leave you with a song of mine. Hope you enjoy and have a nice day.